Back in college, I, uh, I got dropped by my insurance company because I had one too many uh, speeding tickets and uh, a little minor fender bender that wasn't my fault. It really wasn't. But I got a letter, and it informed me to seek coverage elsewhere. I was devastated. I wasn't good enough for my insurance company. I thought about that recently, and I realized that there are a lot of people who today are afraid that they might get a letter something like that from God himself. Max Lucado in his book imagines uh, basically how a letter like that might read, coming from the Pearly Gates Underwriting Division. Dear Mrs. Smith, I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you that you have reached your quota of sins. Our records show that since employing our services, you have erred seven times in the area of greed, and your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age and circumstance. Further reveal, review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is, is in the lower 20 percentile, and you have excessive tendencies to gossip. Because of your sins, you are a high-risk candidate for heaven. You understand that grace has its limits. Jesus sends his regrets and kindest regards and hopes that you will find some other form of coverage. You know, that's how it goes for those who basically uh, live in fear. They live in fear of not knowing enough, not doing enough, not measuring up. Well, here in Luke chapter 15, we are reminded again of the amazing grace and love of God. Amazing grace and love that has no limits, uh, no strings attached. In the first three verses of our passage, we have the context here that led to the telling of this parable. Jesus always had a reason for telling a parable. Follow with me here in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him, that is, near to Jesus, to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let me stop right there. What's the problem? <laughs> well, there's a Jewish uh, rule book back then called the Talmud. And the Talmud made it crystal clear that rabbis were not to hang around, associate, or even eat with a common person, a person who did not, did not keep the law in a very strict and prescribed way. And so the big public accusation uh, against Jesus here was that he was a rabbi, and here he was not only hanging out with the regular folks, but he was also uh, actually embracing and receiving the low life of society, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the other so-called bottom feeders of society. And so with everyone in the street there listening to the loud uh, complaint of the, of, of the religious leaders here, Jesus responds to their harsh criticism with a parable. He tells the following story. And it's actually a trilogy. It's actually three parts of the same parable. The first part is the story of the lost sheep. You might remember that one. You remember that the uh, shepherd leaves the fold of 99. He sacrificially takes the effort and the time to go out and find that one lost sheep and bring it back to the fold. The second part is the account of the, the good woman. She loses a very valuable silver coin, and she basically tears her house apart trying to find this coin, and she finds it. And in both of these first two parts of the parable here, uh, the, basically Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the good woman. In other words, Jesus is telling him, or telling the crowd there, that he'll do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to go after, to, 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 to return and restore that which has been lost. And now in this third part, Jesus portrays himself as the good father. And it's a familiar 
parable. We've all heard it many, many times. But, but what I want you to do this morning is listen to it with fresh ears. Uh, because I want to take a little different angle with this particular parable. It's probably the greatest parable of grace that Jesus ever told. And it's one of my favorites for that very reason. In verse 11, we have the son's demand. Jesus said, a, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, what is the son asking for? He's basically asking for his inheritance. Show me the money. He wants it now. And uh, he wants to do that while his dad is still alive, while his dad is in relatively good health. The son is basically saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I know it's going to happen someday. I'm going to get all the goods. But right now, I really wish you were gone. I want what's mine, and I want it now. There's a heartless callousness here. Why? Because the son wants the benefits. He doesn't want the relationship. And it's a major insult. A typical father back in that day would have had every reason in that culture to strike his son, kick him out of the house, and basically uh, disown him as a son. Why? Because you don't make a demand like that. You just don't do it. But instead, the father does something shocking. He, he, he graciously gives in to his son's demand. Verse 12 tells us, and he divided his wealth between them, that is, between the two sons. Now, this was a huge estate. How do we know that? Because later on in the passage, we find out that they have very large herds and, and lots of house servants. And so this son is given a huge chunk of change, a lot of money. But the wealth is wasted in verse 13. It says, not many days later, the son gathered together everything and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in loose living. Now, when it says he gathered all he had, basically that means he turns everything into cash. He, uh, it took him a couple days, but he sells whatever he has of value there from the estate, and uh, he, he takes off as quick as he can. Why the hurry? I think there were a couple of reasons. First of all, he wants to get out of Dodge as quick as he can because he has shamed his father. And in that culture, the anger from the, from the entire village would rise against this son because he had disgraced his father by, by selling a large portion of the family farm before his father had, had died while he was still farming. His son basically had burned every bridge behind him. And he takes off like a college student during spring break, <laughs> heading to Daytona Beach or Puerto Vallarta or whatever. And he's basically heading to a place where morality is left back at home, where there are no more rules. You see, nobody knows who you are when you go off to a faraway place. Unlike Cheers, nobody knows your name, and nobody cares. In a far distant country, there are no expectations, no name to uphold, no reputation to protect. It's party time. He lives it up in what's called loose living. In fact, it says he squanders his estate. Squandered in the Greek literally means to scatter everywhere. It's like somebody winning the lotto and taking it and spending it anywhere and everywhere until it's all gone. He had no regard at all or respect for what the father had given him. He just blows it off. Now, after he does that, the son ends up going on a job search. Take a look at verse 14. And when he has spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. So basically, this young man had no food, no funds, and no friends. 
He went from uh, riches to rags. He went from wealth to welfare. And what's worse, he was totally wasting his life. He was now destitute. He was on a dead-end street. He wasn't going anywhere. In fact, he's incredibly desperate now for two reasons. First of all, he's hungry. And secondly, he knows what awaits if he goes back home. To go back home, he would fully expect the wrath of his father, the anger of the entire village, and he's going to have to pay back every dime he's blown, basically, if he's ever going to be accepted back in good graces. And so he comes up with two plans, plan A and plan B. Plan A is to uh, work it off as a pig herder. That's the first option, but it's not going to work. Basically, a pig herder is working in a pigsty with pigs as a pig. <laughs> and for a Jew, that's about the lowest rung you can hang on. A rabbinical saying at that time said, Cursed be anyone who would breed swine. Why? Because according to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7, uh, seven the, the pig was considered unclean, the filthiest of all animals. And any decent Jew would have no, nothing to do with any kind of, of, of pork or pig or swine. And so it's obvious to this man that he's desperately in need. He needs the food, though, and he needs the cash. And so, again, plan A uh, just doesn't work. You know, Jesus here, when he tells this parable, he's talking about you and me. That basically, apart from our relationship with a loving Heavenly Father, we're really wasting our time and wallowing with pigs. That really life has no meaning, it has no purpose, it has no direction apart from a relationship with our loving God. And so the prodigal son knows he's going to have to pay back his father if he's ever going to return home. And so he comes up with plan B. He will go home, get job training, and basically serve as a servant, earning his way back. And so plan B is to work it off as a hired hand. Look at verse 17. And when he came to his senses, he said to himself, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, now here's a three-part speech. Are you ready? Number one, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Number two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Part three, make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. Now there are some people who read this uh, parable, and they read this part of the, uh, of the passage where it says he came to his senses, and they, they take that to mean that he repented. He repented while wallowing there with the pigs. In other words, there are some that say this was his point of conversion. This was his come to Jesus moment. This is where his eyes were opened to his guilt and shame, and this is where he had a change of heart. This is where he repented of his sins. I don't buy it. Why? Because it doesn't fit theologically with the rest of the parable here that Jesus was telling. Why is that? Well, you might remember the first part of the parable is the story of the good shepherd, right? He leaves the, the 99, and he goes out to find that one lost sheep. The sheep, in and of himself, doesn't come back and repent. No, the, 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 the shepherd has to initiate the rescue. The shepherd goes out after that sheep and brings it back, right? The second part of the parable is the good woman, who lights a lamp and desperately looks out throughout her whole house for this lost coin. She doesn't just sit there and, and the coin pop out of the crack and roll over to her feet. No, she initiates the rescue. She goes after that which was lost and brings it back and restores it. And so it doesn't seem to fit the pattern here that if we have this, this prodigal son somehow on his own coming to terms with his own lostness and then returning to the father on his own initiative. We're talking about spiritually lost people here who are, are desperately in need of being found. 
And so what we discover in the parable of the lost sheep is how the, the shepherd goes after the sheep. And repentance is demonstrated or shown by the sheep who simply accepts being found and, and then is brought back to the fold. Remember in Psalm 23, the, the psalmist declares that the good shepherd restores my soul. In the Hebrew, that word restores means to, to bring back, to cause me to repent, to, to, to turn. It is the Lord, the good shepherd, who brings us back to the paths of righteousness. He initiates, we respond. And so the key idea of this parable is that repentance is absolutely critical. It's absolutely necessary in the process. It's decided to make that 180 degree turn, going from one direction to the other. But it occurs after we've been found by the seeker. The parable of the sheep and the coin tells us both the same message, that they are totally lost. In and of themselves, they are part from the seeker who has to initiate the rescue. And so we understand that, that really it's God who changes the heart. He initiates, we respond. Our salvation is totally by his grace and by his love. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. We can't conjure it up on our own. It's sort of like being in a pitch black room. There's only one door and it's locked. You can't see your way out. What God does is he flips on the switch and unlocks the door. Now you have a choice to go out the door of that room. What are some other scriptures to back that up? In John 6, Jesus states, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are drawn to him by his drawing power. Again, he reaches out to us. John 1.12 says, But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, the implication is born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's the source. He's the one that draws us. It's his will. He chooses us. And then we respond. Our lost condition before salvation is spelled out for us in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's bleak. This is a dark picture of what we're like apart from Christ. Paul says, You were dead. Not half alive, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now the last I checked, dead people don't respond. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, of the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, uh, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the, the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now that's a bad situation. That's the bad news. What's the good news? It's in verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in, trust, in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, again, our, our salvation is, 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 is attributed to the drawing power of God. We can't conjure it up. It's not something we can manufacture. You're not wise enough. You and I aren't bright enough. We are not able enough. We desperately need God's grace and mercy. And the Bible tells us that human response is always dependent upon God taking the initiative. Theologians call that irresistible grace. The grace which provides revelation and conviction and direction and directs us toward repentance and faith. God initiates, we respond. It involves making alive the spiritually dead and obstinate will of man. 
Okay, so what, what's the prodigal son thinking? He's, here, here's, he's in this pigsty, and he's kind of wallowing there. Uh, but what's he really going through in this faraway country? I'm convinced that plan B here is to work his dad. Not just simply work, but work his father. Soften up the old man. That's what he's thinking. He's come up with this contrived three-part speech, and he wants to basically use it to soften up his dad's heart and to win him over and letting him go back and work it off. That's what he wants to do. And you'll notice three parts of his conversion or his um, uh, confession. Basically, he says, "I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against your and in your sight.' Uh, sounds great. Uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Sounds good. Make me as one of your hired men." <laughs> here is where the prodigal son plans to offer his own solution to basically the problem. What's the problem, or what's the solution? Uh, job training. Make me one of your hired men. In other words, he's basically saying, look, Dad, I'm not going to live at home right now. I'm not deserving of being your son. So basically, I want to be an employee of the family estate, and I want to save up, and I'm going to recover the money. It's going to take me a while, but I'm going to work it off. And then I'm going to maybe, maybe be able to reconcile with you. Maybe I'll be good enough later to reconcile. No grace is necessary here. The son can manage it. He can work it off. He can recover the lost uh, money. Problem solved. In a sense, he's going to save himself. He's going to save himself under the law. Do it his own way. Work it out. Earn it back. In fact, I want you to notice that when he's talking to himself here in that faraway country, he shows no shame. He's not sorry for what he did. There's no guilt. There's no regret. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. He's thinking in terms of a servant standing before a master. He's not thinking in terms of a son standing before a gracious and loving father. How many people view God like that today? A lot of people. I've got to earn my way to heaven. <laughs> I'm going to pay back for the things maybe I've done. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to work really hard and then... When I get to heaven, he's going to maybe weigh the good with the bad on a scale, and if I've got better good things than bad things, I'm going to make it in, and I'm going to earn it. I'm going to deserve it. And so here we find the son. He's, he's heading back home. He's got his humble little speech in his back pocket, and he hopes that the father's going to buy into it and allow him to come back as a hired hand and work the family farm. Now we come to the surprising turning point of the whole parable in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. <laughs> wow. You really get the sense that the father's been sitting on the porch, maybe every day. Basically, uh, day after day, week after week, month after month, maybe year after year, he's watching for his son to come back, knowing that he's going to fail. And basically, the picture we have here is, is of, a, of, of a longing father. And the exciting lesson is this, that Jesus is aggressively looking for us. He really is. He's actively seeking us out in our lostness. He initiates. Praise God for that. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. God knows where we are, who we are, what we are. He knows how to find us. He knows how to rescue us. How does he do that? Look at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran, embraced, and kissed him. I want you to notice three things real quickly here. First of all, the father actually runs toward his pig-herding son. Now, that's unheard of in that society. He had to literally roll up the lower part of his garment and run. 
like a woman might have to raise up the, the front part of her, her skirt. Now his legs are exposed. That's humiliating in that society. It's, it's, it's undignified. It's lowering himself. It's silly. But that's what he does. He runs toward his son. Secondly, it says the father embraces and kisses him even before he hears the speech. In other words, the father doesn't just uh, basically demonstrate love only after his son's confession. He initiates. Thirdly, the father then empties himself. He assumes the form of a servant in order to uh, reconcile with his lost son. And in running and in meeting and embracing and kissing his son, here's where the father powerfully demonstrates his act of, of forgiveness and restoration in that broken relationship. And the prodigal son at this point is blown away. He's overwhelmed. He can't believe it. Why would his dad do this? He's surprised. He's shocked. He opens his mouth and he offers the first part, the first two parts of the speech. He says basically in verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he stops right there. I want you to notice he, he, he intentionally leaves out that last part of the speech about working it off. Why? Because he's given up any notion that he had, or any bright ideas of how to mend this relationship. He's not going to try to work it off. He, he doesn't, know what, doesn't know what to do. And so overwhelmed by the Father's love, he gives up the notion. He's now speechless. He's clueless. He experiences the Father's unconditional love and grace, and he's overwhelmed. And in that instant, in that moment, he changes his mind. And it's at this point that he truly repents. And in that moment, he simply accepts being found. And the Father brings him back. He lets his dad embrace him and love him, and kiss him. <laughs> Look at verse 22. The father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and has, been, and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. One commentary, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor points out, there were no extra steps between the, the son's return and his welcome home party. No heart-to-heart -heart with the old man. No extra chores. No, none of this, go to your room for a week and think about what you have done. Just a clean robe on his back, a fine ring for his hand, and a pair of new sandals on his feet. You know, the best robe was a sign of position. He's now reinstated as a son. The ring represents authority. He's fully, uh, full-pledged back into the family. And the fatted calf was kept only for... Uh, Festive occasions. It's almost as if the father may have kept this calf just for this particular occasion with his son coming back. As the father comes down and out to reconcile with his son, it becomes a symbol for us of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Now remember that the purpose of this whole parable was in response to the religious leaders criticizing and complaining that Jesus was eating with these sinners. And in telling this parable, what Jesus is doing is basically saying, guess what, you're right, I do eat with sinners, but it's worse than you can possibly imagine. Guess what, I not only eat with them, I run down the road, I shower them with kisses, I drag them in to eat with them. That's how much he loves us. The Father here does what Jesus does for each of us. He not only loves us, he justifies us. That word justification is defined as the sovereign act of God whereby he declares righteous the believing sinner, while still in a sinning state. Romans 5a, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
we were justified based upon God's grace. Chuck Swindoll offers a powerful illustration. He says, let's imagine you have a six-year-old boy, a son whom you dearly love. Tragically, one day, you discover that your son was horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators of the, of the crime find the killer. You have a choice. If you used every means in your power to kill the murderer for his crime, that would be called vengeance. If, however, you're content to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and execute on him what is proper, a fair trial, a plea of guilty, capital punishment, well, that would be justice. But if you were to plead for the pardon of the murderer, forgive him completely, invite him into your home, and adopt him as one of your sons, that would be grace. There's no wage relationship with God. Spiritually speaking, you and I haven't earned anything but death. And like it or not, we are absolutely bankrupt. We're without eternal hope. We're spiritually without any merit at all. And we have nothing in and of ourselves that gives us any kind of favor in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. None at all. There's one and only one password into heaven. Grace. <laughs> I want you to notice in the parable, the father declares, let us eat and be merry, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. It does not say he was lost and came home. We read here, he was lost and was found. Who found him? The father. Where did he find him? At the edge of the village. So who is the hero of the story? The father. He's the central figure. It's his banquet. What's the banquet for? The son? No. The banquet here is the celebration of the success of the father who went out and found him. Verse 23, let us be merry, eat and be merry, for the Son of mine was dead, has come to life again, he was lost and has been found. What a wonderful picture of the banquet table in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we all gather together someday in celebration. Celebration of what? The, the Lamb. Celebration of how Jesus Christ found us and saved us and brought us back and restored us into a right relationship with God. That's what the banquet's all about. It's not a celebration of you and me in and of ourselves is a celebration of how God reached out, initiated, we responded, and now we're a part of God's family, now and forever. Praise the Lord for that. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? In order to bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now in verse 25, we have the, uh, the older brother's response. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, he became angry and was not willing to go in. Now the original language there suggests that basically he flew into a rage. The older brother is ticked. <laughs> uh, we find his father then coming out and entreating him. Uh, but we find that the older son's response in verse 29, it's one of contempt. It's one of sarcasm. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when the son of yours, in other words, he's no brother of mine, the son of yours uh, came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Hey, if anyone deserves the fatted calf, it's me. I've been the good kid. I've been the model kid. And he's absolutely right. But here's the big problem with the older son. He thought that his relationship was based upon performance and hard work and obedience. 
his bad attitude reveals that over the years, he basically served the father out of a sense of grim duty, out of moral obligation, not out of loving service. He really didn't know what being a son really was, being a member of the family, something that he could neither earn nor deserve. He didn't get that. Now all he can think about is how, his, how this younger brother of his has blown it, lost all this money, and therefore he has to pay it back in order to be reconciled with his father. And you know, he probably didn't, it probably didn't bother him so much that his, his brother came back. What really chapped his hide, what really ticked him off was that his, his brother gets restored back again as a son. Wait a minute. My little punk brother gets a robe and a ring? What's wrong with this picture? In other words, he's ticked off because grace has been offered and received rather than the requirements and demands of the law. My little brother didn't have to pay for his sins. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. What we discover here is that the older son is in a far more serious state than his younger brother ever was. Why? Because he believes he deserves the father's love because of his works. Dad, you owe me. Look what I've done for you. And you know, the proud and the self-righteous always feel that they're not quite treated as well as they deserve. There's a sense of entitlement. God owes me. I deserve heaven. I deserve good, uh, a good life, health, and prosperity in this life and the next. It's a sense of entitlement. That somehow our goodness in this life should naturally result in a life free of problems, free of pain, free of, free of sickness, and free of, free of death. God, you owe me. <laughs> He owes me because I'm a good guy. I worked hard. I deserve better. But our relationship with God is by his grace. You know the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is basically a giving to us what we don't deserve, which is a relationship with God. Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve, which is God's judgment. The older brother is so angry, he takes the radical step of breaking off the relationship with the father. He doesn't even go to the banquet. He's ticked. And then the father, he goes out again to entreat him. In verse 31, he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours. <laughs> he's not just my son. He's your brother. I'm not going to let you forget the relationship. This brother of yours was dead. He began to live. He was lost and has been found. I want you to notice here that the father doesn't react to the oldest son's insult with any kind of anger we discover that for the second time that day the father reaches out an unexpected love and unexpected acceptance but this time it's to the law keeper instead of the law breaker amazing grace holds true for both what do we learn real quickly three things number one first of all let's be reminded daily that god loves us and he accepts you unconditionally no strings attached and it's hard for us to understand the depths of that kind of love, that there's nothing that we could ever do that would cause God to love us any less. And there's nothing that we can do that would cause God to love us any more than he already does. Secondly, let's spend less time and energy critical of and concerned about the choices of others, even if we're convinced that they're dead wrong. This is the tough one. The father did that. He let his son go. I want you to notice that. He, he, when the younger son came to him and said, show me the money, I want it all, he didn't argue with him. He didn't debate him. He didn't walk with him down the road trying to convince him to come back. And when he was out in that pigsty, he didn't go rescue him. He didn't enable him. He didn't send money out there to bail him out. 
he let him go. He gave them the dignity to make his own choice and to suffer the consequences of that choice. Who do you know <laughs> that you're trying to enable and rescue? Who do you know that you're trying to fix? Only God can change the heart. Let him go. Still love him, maybe love him from a distance. Put up some boundaries. But let me put it this way. One writer puts it like this. For there to be true maturity, people must be given room to grow, which includes room to fail, to think on their own, to disagree, to make mistakes. Grace must be risked, or we will be stunted Christians who don't think, who can't make decisions, who operate in fear and without joy because we know nothing but someone else's demands and expectations. I believe that holds true with our kids, our parents, our family, family members, our friends. I'm going to agree to disagree with you about that, but basically respect your right to choose and let them go. Quit trying to fix them or enable them or change them. I had to do that with my own son years ago. The most painful, the most difficult thing I had to do as a father, to let him go. Only God can change the heart. Finally, we learn here that God, the God who runs toward us, the wrongdoer, also demands that we do the same for those who have wronged us. Grace is not something just to be claimed. Grace is something to be demonstrated. It is to be shared as a, a basis for friendship. It's what sustains us in those friendships. And those who reject the repentant sinner are out of the will of God. Let's commit ourselves to be open, to give each other space, <laughs> to allow, allow them to grow and develop, just like we're allowed to grow and develop. And yes, sometimes we have to suffer the consequences of our bad choices. But we made those choices. We allow others to fail. Our kids, our parents, our friends, accept them and love them anyway. And when they're ready to come back, you, you welcome them with open arms. You don't say, I told you so. <laughs> you don't say, well, I'm going to wait until you pay for it for a while and earn my good graces. We just love and accept them. Because only God can change their heart. Only God can fix them. Let's be gracious people. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to change the hearts of people because he's changing our hearts, molding and shaping us into the image of his son. Amen? <laughs> Let's pray.